Lord Jesus, you are the one that we have waited for, and we thank you. We thank you that you are Emmanuel, and the one that Israel had been promised, the one the world unwittingly was waiting for, and you came in the fullness of time at just the right moment according to our need and for your great glory, and we praise you. We praise you. And we thank you for this opportunity to continue learning from your book how to please you in the way that we worship and in our lives individually, but more importantly, as we come together this morning collectively. Oh, Father, I pray that you would instruct us and teach us afresh and anew why it is that we do what we do and why you call us to worship the way we do. Father, we pray that you'd be glorified in this hour and we give you praise for it, what you'll do in our hearts, what you'll do in our understanding, how you'll bring conviction and bring about change in the way we think and in the way we live. Be glorified in us now, Father, we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. If you're new with us today, we are studying 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We've made it to chapter 14, and we have been looking at the whole issue of chapter 14, which is the issue of tongues. It's a difficult issue, but it's one that we will be complete, Lord willing, by the end of the message today. If you've been watching evangelical Christianity over the past several decades, then you know that it's become kind of a free-for-all where every church does pretty much whatever is right in its own eyes. Some of you have visited many, many churches over the years, and you've witnessed all kinds of things going on in churches that make you wonder whether the leaders of such churches have lost their grip completely on the Word of God and its revelation of God's character. But regardless of what you may have seen and experienced in other churches, I can assure you that, there, that none of it really is nearly as chaotic as what was going on in Corinth. As we continue working our way through chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, we come to this final long section where Paul seeks to correct this chaotic, free-for-all kind of worship philosophy with one that is more consistent with the character and the revelation of God. If you've missed our study on the issue of tongues over the past few weeks, no time this morning to reiterate that. I'd encourage you to either download it from the web or talk to David in the sound booth and he'll get you some CDs. But for this morning, it is our perspective and our approach to pick up from where we left off. And that is with verse 26. Verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 14 is where we'll pick up today as Paul gives us a description of the chaotic worship that was happening in Corinth. And so if you're taking notes, number one here is kind of just an introduction, a description of chaotic worship. And if you've got your Bibles open, and I hope you do, if you don't, there's a pew Bible perhaps in front of you. You can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Verse 26, here is what Paul says. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. 
let all things be done for edification. That, beloved, is the most important phrase. It's the governing phrase that goes all the way through this text. Let all be done for edification. So once again, we need to understand the importance that Paul places on the need for pursuing not self-edification, but mutual edification in the local church. And that begs the question, what is your goal today, right here, right now? Why have you come? Is it for personal edification or is it for mutual edification? Are you here simply to receive something or are you here to give, to give whatever it is that you have that another person needs because God wants you to? That is love. And that is the primary means by which we edify, loving one another biblically, loving one another with the scriptures. Is that why you've come today? It should be the reason we're all here. You see, none of us has been gifted for personal edification. Yes, it is more blessed to give than to receive. There's blessing involved in that. But the purpose is not self-edification. It is the edification of others. And when we get that short-circuited, when we turn that around, it messes the whole plan up. We are not here to serve ourselves. Even Jesus said, Mark chapter 10, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, to give his life a ransom for many. None of us here are here for ourselves. Edification is the point. Edification is the purpose. And edification is the standard upon which we should judge everything that we do in worship. Turn with me back, just, I'm going to stay in 1 Corinthians, but just turn back in my Bible, just two pages to the left, to chapter 8, because in chapters 8 through 10, if you've been here long enough, uh, you were here for our study of 8 through 10, which basically covers one topic, and that is the issue of personal liberty, personal liberty. How do we address issues of personal liberty? Now, in chapters 8 through 10, the issue was some of the brothers who knew a lot about the Bible, a lot about the Old Testament, they understood the gospel, uh, even though the whole Old Testament had not been completely written yet. First Corinthians was one of the early books, and yet they'd been trained by the Apostle Paul, and they knew theologically that an idol is nothing. So food that is sacrificed to an idol is food that was sacrificed to nothing. Therefore, if that food is then sold away from the idol, taken away from the idol, and brought out to market at a cut-rate price, these brothers were saying, hey, nothing wrong with buying it. And some of them were saying, not only is there nothing wrong with buying it, there's nothing wrong with eating it right there where it's sold, at the temple. And so Paul is dealing with that whole perspective on Christian liberty. And what he's, bringing, what he's doing is he's bringing the law of edification to bear upon their, scripture, their, uh, their Christian liberty. And here is essentially what he's saying. He's saying, you guys who are so full of knowledge are seeking to edify yourselves with your liberty. And that's wrongheaded. And maybe even sinful. And so he says in verse 1 of chapter 8, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge 
But here's the thing. Knowledge makes arrogant. But love, what? Edifies. Love edifies. The most important thing is not that you get to express your liberty. The most important thing is that you get to edify other people, that you get to build them up. And we see this um, not only in, in verse 1 of chapter 8, but we see this in chapter 10 as well. Paul concludes uh, all of his instructions and his, um, his dealings with this whole issue of eating food sacrificed to idols. In verses 23 through 24, look at that in chapter 10. He says this, chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things, what? Edify. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. You see, the whole focus of the Christian life is not inward, it is outward. And so many people I know who are struggling with their personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and can I just tell you a secret? If you're struggling, I would want you to look at, not first of all, your personal activities revolving uh, around that relationship, but I would also want to know about your relationship with the body of Christ. What is your ministry to the body? How are you ministering to other people? How are you giving of yourself so that other peoples can be strengthened and can grow? If all you're doing, if your view of church is we show up, we sing, we listen, we pray, we leave, then your view of church is sadly mistaken. And I would dare say there is something about your spiritual health that is lacking, and you know there's something lacking. You just don't know what it is. There's something about being involved in the lives of other people that causes you to grow in Christ. There's something about giving to others that fills your soul. So that the more you give, the more filled you are, the more filled you are, the more filled you are. It's the way God designed it. But if we short-circuit that process and we approach this by, how can I get all the joy? How can I get all the joy? How can I get all the joy? How can I have these experiences? How can I bless myself here today? Pastor, bless me. If you don't bless me, I'm probably going to send you an email and we're going to talk about why you didn't bless me. Or Charlie, if the music doesn't come out, in a way that blesses me, then we're going to have a conversation. Maybe there's an instrument that I don't like, or maybe that song didn't work out for me. And you know what? That's selfish. That is so selfish. And your concern in that case is not edifying other people, it's edifying yourself. That's exactly what was happening in Corinth. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. In other words, self-edification is not what God is after in the church. In fact, Paul rebukes these brothers for their insistence on self-edification. What is edification? Edification, or to edify in the New Testament, comes from a Greek word. It is a very common Greek word in the New Testament, oikos, which means household or home. And the word that's used here means to build a house or to build a home. 
So edification is, to, is the act of building up the house. You are co-laborers in Christ, and you're all doing one magnificent thing. You are being used by God to help build the house of God, the body of Christ. And you can't do that when your eyes are always on yourself. You can't do that when your perspective, you're always testing the passion of your heart to see if you've been adequately fed and energized and stirred up and encouraged. It's wrong-headed. It's backwards. And Paul hammers this all the way through his writings. But here in chapter 14, he hammers it when he says this, uh, chapter 14, verse 4. Look at chapter 14, verse 4. We've already covered this, but it's important for us to see all of this kind of compact in, into one little place, and so that's what I'm going to do. And so in speaking of tongues, he says this in verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue, and as I said, I believe he's speaking of unintelligible gibberish here, not the true gift of tongues. One who speaks in tongues edifies himself, and he's not saying that's good. If you understand the context, because context is what? King, that's right. If you understand the context that Paul's chief concern is that these people are incredibly selfish, that's where all of their problems are coming from, they don't know a lick about edification, then when he says, he who speaks in unintelligible gibberish edifies himself, then you will know intuitively he's not condoning that, he's condemning it. He's rebuking them for it. And that's why the gift of prophecy is so much better for the church than ecstatic gibberish, the kind they were engaged in. Why? Because look at the end of verse 4. The one who prophesies, what? Edifies the church. That's the whole point. He spent most of this chapter dismantling their view of tongues. He spent most of this chapter saying tongues is always secondary because tongues by itself, listen, never edifies. Because tongues by itself, by its definition, nobody else understands it. You have to have someone with another gift, namely the gift of interpretation, before the tongues can be of any benefit to anyone. And so the whole point of chapter 14, the first 19 verses, is that tongues is secondary. If it's used at all, it's secondary. But prophecy, prophecy is primary. Now again, Paul will pound this point home in verse 12 of chapter 14 where he says this, seek to abound for edification. Seek to overflow in edification. So even though as the apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul spoke in tongues more than any of those brothers, when he says that, by the way, I think I mentioned this last week, tongues was part of the confirming signs or authenticating signs of an apostle. If you claim to be an apostle and yet you didn't have uh, the corresponding signs, miracles, speaking in tongues, then you probably were not an apostle. In fact, most definitely. And so Paul, we don't have any instance of him actually speaking in tongues. He was so discreet with this. 
We never have a narrative where we find Paul speaking in tongues, and yet he apparently did because he said, I rejoice that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Why did he do that? Because he was an apostle. Using that gift was an authentication of who he was and the message that he preached. But notice what he said. Um, verse 19. However, 1419, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also. I'd rather speak five words with my mind than 10,000 words in an unintelligible gibberish, or even using the actual gift of tongues, which was not gibberish, but a real language. I'd rather say, Jesus Christ is my Lord, than spend all day speaking to you in a language that you can't understand. And here's why. So that I may instruct myself, no, no, so that I may instruct others. Edification. Edification. Beloved, that is edification. Now, Paul is saying this one more time in verse 26, and this is, this is where we start. Verse 26, here he goes, the end of verse 26. Let all things be done for edification. Let all things be done to contribute to building up the house. Let other people build into your life. You focus on building into other people's lives. Now, obviously, that is not a hard and fast rule. When you're home, when you're having your time with God, yes, you are, you are determined to get all of God that you can, to study his word, to pray, to learn as best you can when you're alone. But when you come here, it's about other people, other people, other people, other people, other people. And beloved, I so appreciate those of you who take seriously after the worship service the opportunity to pray with one another, and we're seeing more and more of that, praise God. But there needs to be more and more of that as an expression of our desire to serve others and not be served ourselves. Now Paul is saying, let all things be done for edification. Why is he repeating this? Because this was precisely what the Corinthians were not doing when they came together for worship. In fact, they were so committed to self-edification that their worship had degenerated into chaos. Listen to the description. Here he goes. Chapter 14, verse 26. What is the outcome or what is the summation? What is the conclusion? What, what is the result of the way you are approaching worship? Here we go. When you assemble, each one has a psalm. Let's stop there. Each one has a psalm. What's he saying? People are coming with psalms to read? No. He's saying each one of you comes with a song to sing. A song to sing. Now, I realize he's using hyperbole here. He doesn't mean every person in the church is coming ready to sing a solo. But a lot of people were. A lot of people just wanted to sing. And here's the thing. They didn't care what else was going on in the worship service. Everything was so spontaneous and so chaotic that people just started singing. Not with each other, but alone. And so we had a little, God rest ye, little I mean, merry gentlemen over here, and we had a little silent night over here, and it was this menagerie of, of singing, but they all thought, oh, but I'm worshiping God. Not in a way that pleases him. Not in this context. 
not in the assembly. If you want to do that with yourself and God at home, feel free. But not when you come together. Not when you come together. Each one of you has a, a hymn. You have a song you want to sing. Everybody has a song. And so if you visited the church of Corinth, that's what you would find on Sunday morning. You'd walk into assembly and there would be people just randomly, kind of all over the place. And they might even be singing in tongues. And then you not only can't quite hear what they're saying, but even if you could, you couldn't understand it. And notice everybody, here's the second thing he says. Again, verse 26. When you assemble, each one has a psalm. Each has a teaching. In other words, each has a lesson. You've all come prepared, you know, and again, not all, but many of you have come prepared to, to give a lesson. You're, you're, you're wanting to get people who will listen to you talk about the scriptures. And so uh, everybody comes, and, and so we got some people singing, and we got little group over here, and little group over here, and little group over here, and, and this person, and that person, and the other person are, are sharing their thoughts on the scriptures for the week. And they're kind of doing their own thing. Listen, if you think this is so bizarre it can't happen, then you don't know anything about the modern emergent church. Because this kind of stuff is central. The preaching of the word, I mean, there is one, um, I better not take a shot at his name, I might call the wrong emergent. Um, but one of their leaders one time said, you know, I just, I just wonder... Why, why is it that I get 35 minutes to stand behind the pulpit and speak when you all don't get any time at all? Now that needs to change. And some of the emergent churches set up little stations around kind of the outside wall of the, um, of the chapel, inside, inside the room, but kind of on the outside, I mean, past, past the pews, or they probably don't use pews. Um, not that there's anything holy about that, but... But here's what would happen. If in the middle of the worship service, you decide this would be a really good time to take the Lord's Supper right now, then you can get up from your seat and go serve yourself. It's a self-serve Lord's Supper. I'm not making this up. Self-serve Lord's Supper. Um, if you've got a tongue, stand up and, and use it. If you've got a prophecy, we want to hear it. And it's chaotic. And I think in Corinth it was even worse. Everybody had a revelation is the next thing. This means that periodically in the midst of the chaotic singing and competitive teaching, some people would get a revelation from the Lord and just start blurting it out. Now Paul's going to deal with that in a minute. And it's not that people didn't get revelation. This was, after all, first century. God, the Holy Spirit, was still doing this. However, even that needed to be controlled, and we'll see that in a minute, but, but here's what was happening. It was uncontrolled, and people would just get this move of the Holy Spirit. Oh, I got a word from God. They'd stand up and, and deliver it. And then everybody has a tongue. People all over the place were speaking in tongues, singing in tongues, praying in tongues. Some of them were all wrapped up in this ecstatic gibberish, and, and maybe there were others who, being uninstructed and having the real gift of tongues, were using the true gift in an inappropriate way. We need to bring to bear here the reality that Paul has very clearly said in verse 22, tongues then are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. 
And so there is an occasion, we can imagine an occasion where there are unbelievers. I assume there's unbelievers in this church every Sunday, every Sunday. I assume there, there are religious unbelievers who are here right now looking at me this very moment or listening to me on the web. I assume that. And some of these people who were coming in, perhaps they were visiting or they were transitioning through this area and were brought in by a Christian relative to come to the church of Corinth. And they would come in and maybe an unbeliever, an unbelieving Jew who comes from uh, Crete or somewhere and someone in the body stands up and starts speaking to them in their language. I can see a place for that. I can see a place for that. In the days when tongues were in use, but th- this wasn't the case. There was no order about it. It's just if you felt like doing it and you felt like the Spirit was upon you, you just did it, whatever it was. It's me and Jesus. I'm glad the rest of you are here because that's kind of fun, but I'm here for me. I'm here for me. And then everybody had an interpretation. Can you imagine? Again, I think it's hyperbole. It's not that everybody. I mean, you can't sing and uh, teach and speak in tongues and have an interpretation. So he's obviously not speaking about every single person in the church. But there were, he's saying, a lot of you, a number of you, an extraordinary number, way over the top number of people who would hear a tongue and say, I got the, I got the interpretation. I got the interpretation. Everybody's interpreting. And so to visit the church of Corinth was to enter spiritual chaos. They had taken their freedom to worship to the extreme. And it was downright spooky. No wonder Paul said um, in verse 23, Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and an ungifted man or unbeliever enters, will he not say, you're all crazy? You're all mad. Even an unbeliever sees that what's happening among you is wrong. There's something wrong with this. And yet you can't see it. This was chaos. This was spiritual, church-centered chaos. What was the cure? The cure was edification. The cure was helping them get their minds around the whole concept of edification, which should be governing everything that they do when they come and when we come together for worship and this was Paul's teaching throughout the New Testament. Watch this, Romans 15, 2 and 3. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For, now here comes the example of Jesus. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And so he not only came to serve others, He came to bear our suffering, even at the hands of other people. Again, Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give. To love is to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus was all about edification, not self-edification. Do you ever find Jesus saying, Wait a minute, having some alone time here. Boundaries, boundaries. Ever see Jesus say that? Well, how about that time he was in a boat? He just came away from the crowd, 
and he was just so exhausted. He gets in the boat with the guys, and they, they cross over. They're going to a quiet place, and when they get on land, somehow the people figured out where he was going. And he shows up, and he's dead tired, and there are 20,000 people waiting for him. And the text says, he looked on them with compassion because he saw them as shepherd, uh, as sheep without a shepherd. Others, others, others. You know when he got his own time, his own personal time with God? While the disciples were sleeping. Hmm. Well, that's too convicting. About Ephesians 4.11, God gave to the church the apostles, the prophets, etc. For what purpose? For edification. Not only so that they would edify the church, not only so that the, the pastors and teachers, the pastor teachers would edify the church, but that the church would be equipped so that each person would do his part in the edification of the whole body, the building up of this house called the church but only as each person does his job in ministry to other people, only then does that happen. And the whole business in Ephesians 4 about growing up into the fullness of the stature of Christ, he's not talking to you individually. You'll never grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ. You'll never have all the gifts. But you know what? Paul is talking about the church we collectively can grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ. We can become collectively a mature and holy and unified body in Christ, but only to the degree that everybody in that body is doing its work. Everybody's doing his thing to serve the others. And so in Romans 14, 19, he says this, so then, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. This is what the Corinthian church desperately needed to learn and had so sorely missed. And so Paul t teaches it here by giving them some very practical regulations. So what has he just told us? He's told us the problem. He's identified the problem, the chaos in worship and now he's going to give some corrective regulations, very practical things that they can apply. And these things apply to all churches, as we'll see. And there are three of them. Number one, he gives us regu regulations for the use of tongues, regulating the use of tongues. Look at verses 27 and 28. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Remember, these were the days when the true gift of tongues was active in God's economy. But even though its use was permissible, it had to be regulated, just like everything else. Listen, if you don't regulate your eating, uh, you're going to get fat. <laughs> if you don't regulate your entertainment, you're going to become a couch potato. I mean, everything in life. If you don't regulate your, your work, man, 
your wife is going to become bitter. And your children are, are, are probably going to rebel. Everything needs to be regulated. Not these things, but here's the problem. They weren't being regulated. They weren't being regulated. And so here's the regulations. First, tongues needed to be expressed in a controlled manner. And that's just kind of a summary of all of this. Tongues needed to happen in the local assembly in a controlled manner. Paul would not have people breaking out in tongues randomly in the middle of the worship service. If the gift was going to be used for the edification of the body, then it had to be practiced under self-control. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit must always regulate the gifts of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit must always regulate the gift of the spirits of the Spirit. Next, there is to be no more than two or perhaps three and no more than three speakers uh, of tongues in any, giving, any given worship service. No more than three. And you kind of get the sense in the language here that Paul would prefer no more than two, but he'd be, he'd be willing to go to three, but no more. No more. Again, this is clearly contrary to what happens in many charismatic churches today where just about every other person in the assembly is either speaking, praying, or singing in tongues. Third, speaking in tongues must be orderly. Notice the phrase, each in turn, simply means this, they need to take turns. And I would say that they need to take turns under the leadership of the church. And I was talking to someone after the first service, and they said, uh, with regard to bringing up a teaching, uh, they were in a, uh, a sovereign grace church, which tends to be uh, on the charismatic side of things. We love those brothers. Um, but the way they would do things is if someone had a word from Scripture and they would try to regulate it to two or three, um, but if they wanted to say something, they had to go to the attending elder who was there for the purpose of you quietly coming and presenting what you wanted to say to the body before you were allowed to come forward. And that's fine. You got a church service where uh, people are getting opportunity to share uh, under the leadership of uh, the pastor teachers, the elders of a local congregation, that's fine. But that wasn't happening here. And it wasn't happening not only with ministry of the word, the prophecy, but also with the gift of tongues. And people were just jumping up. And they were just babbling this unintelligible speech right in the middle of it. It needs to be orderly. It needs to be in turn. He says they can... They can they can do it all. All of, all of them who want to, up to three people can do it, but they can't do it at the same time. You can't do it at the same time. It cannot be chaotic. Finally, speaking in tongues must be accompanied by an interpreter. You see that? Verse, um, uh, verse the end of verse 27. At the most three in each in turn, and one must interpret but if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and God. And now it's interesting here in, in the Greek, uh, the one is, emphasis, is emphasized. One must interpret. Uh, now again, he may be using the opposite kind of hyperbole in uh, all doesn't necessarily mean every single person in one May, may have some latitude there where there might be two or three in the body who have the gift of interpretation, but here's the thing. Maybe there's only one person in the body. 
Maybe there's only one person in the body who has the gift of interpretation. Paul's saying, if that guy's not here, no tongues. If that guy's not here, no tongues. Let him go home and speak to himself and to God. I think he's being, again, I think he's being sarcastic. If you can't control yourself, then go home. You, you just go home and, and do this thing by yourself. But you're not going to do it in the church. You're not going to do this in the church. And if you do, you're just flat out disobeying God. Which he'll say here at the end. If the interpreter's not there, the tongue speaker needs to restrain himself, restrain his gift, and remain silent. Now, these regulations, with the exception of a couple of charismatic denominations that I know of who, who try to get this right, though I disagree with them on uh, their understanding of tongues, which I think we've borne out here in the last couple of weeks. And by the way, if you um, have, have not had a chance to look at the additional notes that I, I offered to you last week online from last week's message, there's a wonderful thing in there, um, a very helpful piece in there from D.A. Carson who talks about interpretation. And he says he had a friend who would periodically go to charismatic churches or at least a charismatic church, and when it came time for the tongue speaking, he stood up and he um, rattled off John chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, I think, in Koine Greek. It's a dead language. Nobody speaks that, um, except very few scholars. And he rattled this off in Koine Greek, just perfect Koine. And uh, he had interpreters stand up, and two interpreters, I think he said, two interpreters they both interpreted what he said differently, and neither one of them said anything remotely related to John chapter 1. And D.A. Carson, who is very sympathetic, really, to uh, uh, the whole charismatic thing, um, he nevertheless says, just on the basis of the fallacious interpretation that is proven again and again and again and again and again, historically, that in itself is enough to question whether modern tongues even exists. Um, by the way, that section of those notes is full of uh, web addresses. You can go and do your research on that on your own if you would like. In any case, Paul believed that, that they needed to be regulated. Even the proper use of tongues needed to be regulated. But not only tongues... The second section here, instructions or regulations concerning prophecy. Look at chapter uh, 14, verses 29 through 32. Read along with me here. Let two or three prophets speak, and let others pass judgment. But if, if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Now, what's he saying? Well, similar to the regulation for tongue speaking, there is never to be more than two or three people get up and minister the word of God. No more than two or three. I mean, can you imagine having multiple sermons on Sunday morning? Let, let me preach, let Brent preach, and let Charlie preach. And maybe we can mix it up a little bit. Um, 
In Russia, if you ever have the opportunity to go with SGA to one of the uh, Baptist churches or uh, churches in the Baptist Union over in any of the Russian countries, what you're going to find is that their worship services are longer than ours, and they almost always, I say almost only because I, there surely is an exception. I've never seen an exception to this, but perhaps there is. There's always three sermons. There's always three sermons. And you may have been here a few weeks ago when I told you, when I was in Tajikistan just a month or so ago, um, my wife was calling me saying, uh, uh, do you know who's preaching yet on Sunday? And I said, no, we haven't been told. Um, but I'm ready. I know how things go around here, and I'm, and I'm going to be ready. And so Sunday morning, as late as Sunday morning, we still didn't know. I was on my way to the church when I asked uh, who's preaching this morning, and uh, the brother who is the, uh, for lack of a better term, the associate pastor of the church said, I don't know. Um, and so if he didn't know, I didn't know. And we got there and sat with the pastor in the basement, and, uh, and this is how we found out. He looked at one brother, and he said, brother, you will give greetings from your country, and you will preach 10 minutes. And he looked at Eric Mock, and he said, brother, you will give greetings from your church and from Slavic Gospel Association, and you will preach 30 to 40 minutes. And then he looked at me and said, uh, brother, you will preach, you will bring greetings from Calvary Bible Church, and you will preach 40 to 50 minutes. And that's how we found out. And I always wondered why in uh, the Russian churches do they always have three sermons? Why always three? And they're regulated according to time, the shorter one and then a longer one and then the main sermon at the end. But there's three. And I always thought to myself, you know, I don't know why they chose three, but three is pretty much max for me. I mean, if you got four sermons, I'm going to walk out of here with my head spinning. Uh, not only hungry and tired, but I'm going to forget everything that you just said. Five sermons, that's going to be too much. But I always wondered, why three? And then I realized this week, this is the instruction that Paul gives. No more than three. And so the Russian brothers say, well, let's get all the preaching of the word that we can get. We're going to have three sermons. And they're going to have lots of music. They're going to have somebody come up to read poetry. They're going to be three sermons. These must be men, I take it, who are gifted in prophecy, preaching. No more than two or three. Second, the second regulation is that the other prophets must pass judgment. This is so important, beloved. This is so important. Now, I don't think, uh, I don't think the other teachers did this publicly. For example, if we had th three, um, if we had uh, three sermons here at Calvary Bible Church, and I was maybe the second one, and Brent was the third, I don't think Paul is allowing for Brent to get up and say. Listen, what Pastor Dan just said is wrong. He better not. He'd lose his job. Um, however, apparently what Paul is saying is, those of you who are the gifted teachers, you got to be discerning with one another, which means every one of you has to be open to scrutiny. Now, beloved, if you can show me a Pentecostal church or one of the charismatic churches you see on television, if you can point out one where the preacher is open to scrutiny on what he teaches, I will show you a very rare charismatic church. Now, I understand Sovereign Grace is probably the exception, maybe Calvary Chapel, but by and large, when you think charismatic, you should think lack of discernment. 
Nobody's holding anybody in check. Nobody's questioning anything that's said, whether it's true or false. And you know why? Because these guys claim that everything they're teaching you, they got directly from God. And who are you to question God? Oh, beloved. Now, you may not be a member of Calvary Bible Church. You may just be passing through. You may be looking for a church. Let me exhort you. If you are looking for a church, look for a church where the teachers submit under the Word of God and do not put themselves over the Word of God. You must hear the Word with gladness and then check it out. Study it for yourself to see if what you have heard is true according to Scripture. And if it's not, reject it, even if it's from my mouth. That's what God wants. And this is a big problem in charismatic circles. Third principle. And this one kind of puts itself in a category of uh, first century only. There's a new revelation that takes place while the other one is going. That is, if we're in first century Corinth and we're doing it right and I'm up here preaching and Brent uh, gets a word from the Lord. Uh, Maybe it's Peter down there getting a word from the Lord. I don't mean Peter Osterberg. Um, Then he would maybe kind of raise his hand or talk to one of the elders and say, man, God just just gave me something. I got to tell this. And word would get to the preaching, the pastor who was preaching, whichever prophet was preaching, it's time time to land the plane and step down because we're getting a new word from the Lord. Now, I would submit to you that was unique in first in the first century church, but apparently it was happening during these times, and Paul wasn't against that at all. What he was concerned about was that things were happening in an orderly manner. And finally, all prophesying was to be kept under control. Notice verse 31. Verse 31, he says, For you can all prophesy one by one, and I think he's saying, all of you who are gifted to proclaim and expound the word, to bring the word of God to bear on other people's lives, All of you, and and there are other regulations here too, which we're going to see, it's men only, but all of you can have your turn up to three, up to three, but, um, or so that all may learn and be exhorted. Do you see, do you see edification there? All of you may prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be exhorted. And watch this. The spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You know what that means? It means just because the Holy Spirit is doing something in your life doesn't give you an excuse for lack of control. You are in control. This was a big issue because in the mystery religions, they claimed that they weren't in control. You know, the spirit would come upon them, an evil spirit, I think, would come upon them or their emotions would just well up and they would just give themselves completely to it. And that's exactly what was happening in the church of Corinth. And they were claiming that it was the Holy Spirit. It's different now. It's the Holy Spirit. But they were being just as chaotic and uncontrolled with it as anybody would have been in one of the mystery cults that they came out of. And so Paul was saying, listen, it's different here. It's different here. If you are part of the church, then exercise self-control. The spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You don't have to say everything that you think. 
And by the way, just as a parenthesis, husbands, wives, you don't have to say everything you think either. Your wife provokes you to anger. You got all kinds of thoughts going in your head. You don't have to say them. You say, well, uh, Dr. Phil says I need to express it. I need to get it all out. Uh, Stop listening to him. (laughs) You need to take it to the Lord first and determine whether it's appropriate and necessary for you to talk to your wife about that. And then if it is, you better. But you better ask yourself first, wives, just because you're feeling emotion doesn't mean you have to express it. Doesn't mean you have to say it. You say, well, I'm just being truthful. No, you're just being mean. You're just being selfish. How about a little self-control? The spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You have the capacity to control yourself. Exercise that capacity. The Holy Spirit bears the fruit of the Spirit in the life of a child of God. One of those fruits is self-control. Exercise it for the edification of other people. Just because you take offense as something that someone says doesn't automatically mean that you need to go confront that person. Maybe the person you need to confront is you. Maybe the sin that took place was in you. But that's too convicting, too. Let's keep moving. Some may ask, why all the rigidness? This feels rigid. I mean, where's the freedom? Why do we have to be so regulated? And Paul answers that question. Look at verse 33. For, and four just tells us, get ready, here's coming the reason. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Beloved, say this with me. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. And all that means is that we exist to show the world what God is like. What Paul is saying here is this. So conduct your worship in a way that when people come in to see what's happening or to participate with you, they see something of God. Don't let them come in and look around and say, y'all are crazy. But rather, so worship, so minister to one another that they will say, there's no explanation for this except that God must be in your midst. This is something God must have done. The reason the church service needs to be orderly rather than chaotic is because the church is to be a reflection of the character of God. Even our worship service should show the world what God is like. God is a God of harmony and order and peace. And our worship service should reflect those attributes of God. Is there freedom? Yeah, there's freedom. There's freedom. We could probably do some things here that we're not doing. Maybe. Probably. 
And we have the freedom to do them or not do them. But there are some things that have to be regulated if we're going to do all things decently and in order. Now, here comes uh, regulation number three. Are we ready for this? Okay, if I haven't been controversial yet, here we go. (laughs) Verses 34 through 36. This is regulating women in the church. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it for you? Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come only to you? Now, I think most scholars believe that the end of verse 33 is actually the beginning of this section, which is why I didn't read it at the end of verse 33. So let's put it here. Uh, By the way, in case you're wondering, the numbers are not inspired. In fact, your Bible may even have different verse numbers. Um, Those are not inspired. But here's what it would say if... If we just bump that down, Paul would be saying this, as in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent. In other words, this is what I teach everywhere. This is what the apostles teach in every church. Now, I don't believe this means that as soon as a woman crosses the threshold of the chapel, they need to close their mouths. Uh, That's not what he's saying. Nor do I believe women should not be allowed to teach other women or to teach children. That's not what he's saying. But however, one of the problems in Corinth was that the women who were coming out of these mystery religions had been worshiping in such a way that the women were really in charge. Yes, there was a priest, but sometimes uh, the oracle was a woman. The oracle of Delphi, for example, was a woman, if you've done any kind of study in Greek history. And so this was very feminine. There was a lot of femininity and, frankly, a lot of homosexuality that took place in the mystery religions. Very few men. And so when the church started and these people came in, they brought with them all of this stuff that they had brought, that they had learned from the mystery religions. And granted, they didn't have all the revelation that we have, but they were getting it. They were getting it directly from the Apostle Paul, and there were some things that needed to be corrected because one of the things that was happening was women were coming in, and they were taking charge. You kind of get the, the impression that the tongue speakers were primarily women, and the people who were bickering here were primarily the women. It's interesting, in, in Philippians, the book of joy, there's one place in the book of Philippians where he deals with conflict, and it's these two women, Yodia and Sintichi, or however you pronounce their names. Um, but there was this problem. In the public service, women were to keep silent. They were not to speak up, which means they were not to teach, they were not to speak in tongues. And there's something else that they weren't allowed to do either, and I'll show you in just a minute. Because they were causing all kinds of problems. And once again, the charismatic movement has completely disregarded this. Completely disregarded it. It's so much like Corinth. When you go to these chaotic charismatic worship services, and again, let me say, I'm not anti-charismatic. I'm against their theology, and I'm against every place where they divert from the Word of God, and this is big time right here. And the women preachers, oh my goodness. 
But Paul says very clearly here, this is the law of God. Genesis 3.16 is where all of this starts. Right after the fall, God says to Eve, um, you will seek to rule your husband, but he will rule over you. That's the order. He will rule over you. In 1 Timothy 2.11, Paul teaches um, the church in Ephesus through Timothy. He says, let the women learn in silence. I do not permit a woman to teach. Now, again, I take that to mean in the assembly, when there's a mixed audience, she's not allowed to get up and preach. Verse 35 seems to indicate one of the things certain women did in the services that was particularly disruptive. And here's what they would do. Here's verse uh, 35 where he says, um, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. Paul is is attacking these uh, questioning, questioning. You get the idea that what was happening is some of these women right in the middle of this chaotic worship service, a guy would be up there preaching using the gift of prophecy, and they would fire off questions at him, and sometimes antagonistic questions. I've been a part of that. In Uganda one time, faced that. This past time in Tajikistan, I was teaching, and I, I, asked, the, I asked the question, are there any questions? And, uh, and frankly, most of my students were women, and, and in Russia, most of the people who go to church are women. But they wanted to learn how to bring the Word of God to bear. And so I was asking specifically any questions on the material that I just taught you. And this woman's hand goes up, and through the the interpreter, uh, I hear the question. uh, What about head coverings? And I look over at Eric Mock, and he's doing this, which is kind of the signal that says, warning, Will Robinson, (laughs) danger, danger, danger. And he kind of, because nobody else in the room spoke English except my translator, he said to me, he said, brother, be very, very careful. This is a very hot topic here because many of the women in this church are rebelling against the authority of the leaders. They don't want to wear the traditional head covering. And on the other hand, the women are saying, we don't see in the Bible that it's a, it's a commandment. And... And they totally, they, they just kind of took off on this tangent. Um, and I think that's what was happening, except more directly and more abruptly in the worship service in Corinth. The, the women were saying, oh, yeah? Well, what about, what about head coverings? What about, you know, whatever? And they're just totally disrupting the service. And Paul said, here's the regulation. Those of you who are going to speak in the service, if you speak in tongues, there's only going to be three of you. If, the, if Mr. Interpreter's not here, nobody speaks. Those of you who are going to be prophesying, you get something to bring to, to the body under the leadership of the church, only three of you. And women, you're not going to be one of them, not tongue speakers, not prophets. And if you have any question about what is being said, ask your husband on the way home. This is the order. We are going to be an orderly people. Because God is a God of order. God is a God of order. Now, let me just speak to the men for a minute. Man, the implication here is that if she's got questions, you got answers. You say, so many men say, well, I just don't have time to really learn the scriptures. Really? I've seen 
some of you talk about baseball, basketball, the Final Four. You know the players, you know the stats, you know the upcoming games, you know who's on top, who's likely to lose, who's likely to win. How'd you learn that? Got time for that? If your wife has questions, if your children have questions, you should have answers. And you may not immediately have the answer, but your family ought to know, if I've got a question, my daddy or my husband either knows the answer or he'll find it. He'll find it. But that's too convicting too, isn't it? And notice the sarcasm that he uses toward women here. These particular women who were, I mean, he goes, up to this point, he's just giving impersonal regulations. And then he drops this on them. Uh, Verse 36, was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come only to you? In other words, did you write the Bible? I mean, the way you present yourselves in the church, it's like you're the only one who knows the truth. If you've got questions, ask your husband on the way home. You're no longer allowed to speak in church. It's sarcasm. It's sprinkled throughout Paul's teaching here. These are important verses on the role of women in the church, and there's a lot more that can be said and has been written on the role of women in the local church, and that's not the point of uh, my message this morning. All we need to see here this morning is that God was laying down clear regulations for how the worship in the assembly of believers should be conducted. And he even goes so far as to determine how to recognize a true prophet. Watch this, verses 37 and 38. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, you hear a little attitude there? You think you're spiritual? Let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. The Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Somebody asked me after the first service last week, do you think that Paul or the apostles knew when they were writing Scripture? Because not everything they wrote, clearly, was inspired. Not everything they said was infallible. But clearly they were used of God to write the scriptures. Do you think that the apostles knew when that was happening, when they were writing and they knew it was scripture? And my answer was a definite maybe. (laughs) uh, But I couldn't be dogmatic. I thought, you know, I just really can't point to a text right now. I said, I really think they did, but I don't have a scripture. But here we are the next week. Here's a scripture. Paul says, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. This is God's word on the issue. This is not me. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to you through me, and I am speaking infallibly. This is the commandment of God. And if you don't recognize that, It doesn't matter what kind of following you have. It doesn't matter how spiritual you may think you are or how gifted you may believe yourself to be. The true test of whether or not you are truly spiritual is not a test of your knowledge. 
not a test of your ability to communicate, not a test of whether or not you are uh, greatly gifted. The true test of whether or not you are a preacher of the word of God is this, do you submit to the word of God? Will you submit to the word of God? Whether or not you will humble yourself to the word of God. Paul saying to the rest of the congregation, if there's anybody among you who ignores these things, ignore them. No matter who they are. And if you have to discipline them, do it. But we will not have a chaotic worship service. We will not. Because God is a God of order. Conclusion, verses 39 and 40. Therefore, or in conclusion, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. And don't forgive, don't forbid the speaking in tongues. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Be zealous about prophecy because that will lead to much edification. Don't forbid the use of tongues as the true gift is being used. Just make sure it's regulated, as I have written. All things must be done correctly or properly and in sequence or in an orderly manner. Why? Because this is the best way to demonstrate the character of God when we assemble. You see, beloved, there are reasons why the church does the things that it does and why we don't do other things. We're not free to reinvent the church. Oh, how many books have come out just in, in my short adult lifetime calling for us to reinvent the church or re, re, um, um, rethink the church, reimagine the church? We're not free to reinvent the church or use spiritual gifts in any way that we please. Jesus is the Lord of the church. This is his church. It's not my church. It's not the elder's church. It's not some celebrity or denomination's church. Jesus is Lord of the church. And if we are his people, then there's nothing that we should love to do more than please him in everything. Everything. May we be found faithful doing so when he comes. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use these truths in so many different ways in our hearts to change us, not only in how we think about the worship service and how it should run and things we should do and not do, but even more importantly, are we people who come to the worship service prepared to love, to serve, to edify, are we the kind of people who come looking for opportunity and making opportunity to minister to others for their edification? Or are we just here for ourselves? And especially for the men in this church, Father, I pray that you would teach us to always be ready with an answer for the hope that is within us. That when our wives have questions or our children have questions, that we would be diligent to present ourselves workmen who do not need to be ashamed because we can cut the word straight, can rightly divide the word of truth. 
Make it so in us, Father. Help us to have the discipline that it need, that, that is required so that we can be such men in this body, to turn off the things that need to be turned off in our lives and to turn on the things that need to be turned on. And may you be glorified in it, Father. And so these things we pray for the glory of Jesus and for our own abundant joy. Amen.